you know, I was working in extension, you know, working with farms, didn't want to be a farmer, um, transitioned over to NRCS so that I could work with more farms that, you know, dairy farms that were grazing. And along the way, um, you know, I got married, had kids, got divorced, met Jack, Jack had sheep. We decided to buy a farm together, move his sheep here. And um, that's kind of how I ended up being a sheep farmer. I never expected to actually like sheep because, you know, you always hear the story like people who have cows hate sheep and vice versa yes. because they think sheep are stupid. Yes. They're not. They're just, they have a strong flock behavior. Welcome to Choosing to Farm, a podcast for first and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers to share their stories, find connection, and provide insight into the life of farmers who didn't take the traditional path. I'm your host, Jen Colby. This is Jen. Thanks for joining us. Uh, first, I have been talking about grass stravaganza in the last few podcasts for just a few reasons. Uh, one, I've been to this event and it is awesome to actually do a grazing conference in grazing season and be able to see plants growing and talk about what's going on in the soil. It's really real time stuff and they just winter conferences just don't do that, even though, you know, I love a good winter conference. Um, but two, it's also a fantastic opportunity to bring together first generation folks and multi-generational folks and have this real mentorship, co-learning. These times, times are changing and there's a lot to learn from both old and new, especially when we work together. And it's a perfect opportunity for that. And three because this event is planned and organized by grazing farmers. It's really well thought out, it's super relevant, and it is just a joy to attend. So I hope that you consider coming to Grestravaganza at the end of July. So Karen Hoffman is this episode's guest, and she is one of the organizers of Grestravaganza. She's had a long career working in livestock agriculture and natural resources, and she balances a full-time job with USDA NRCS along with her sheep farm. She's also a first-generation farmer who is figuring it out as she goes along, just like the rest of us. Here's Karen to tell her story. All right. So I'm Karen Hoffman, and I own Peaceful by Nature Farm, which is located in Norwich, New York. Um, that is in Shenango County. Uh, I always tell people it's exactly in the middle of nowhere because <laughs> it takes at least an hour to get to any major city in upstate New York from here. So if you go an hour east, you get to Oneonta, New York. If you go an hour south, you get to Binghamton, New York. If you go west, you get to Cortland, New York. And if you go north, you get to Utica, New York. So we are in the middle of nowhere. That sounds like the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, and I've been here for, um, I've been in the county for just over 30 years. I started with 
Cornell Cooperative Extension. I uh, worked there for six years, and then I transitioned over to the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service, where I have been for um, just over 25 years. So, Wow. What do you raise on your farm? Oh, so I have a small flock of Dorset sheep. Um, currently, I have seven that I just finished lambing with. Um, a couple of years ago, I had 25, and that was just unmanageable having a full-time job off the farm plus having 25 sheep lambing at all times of the day and night <laughs> and then problems after lambing right. you know that just I couldn't catch in time um, and then I also have two goats which are sort of the leftovers from a small herd of eight that I had that I used to control some brush on the property and I currently have three black Angus cows and a black Angus calf. Those are my animal numbers. I did not realize that you were doing diversified species like that. I knew that you were, I knew that you raised sheep because we've talked about that, but um, yes. yeah. What do you like about doing multi-species? So um, the thing I think I like the best about it is that I can manage my grazing so that the cattle graze where the sheep have grazed as a form of parasite control for the sheep. Um, you know, like most of the time with sheep, you have to have like a, a minimum of a 30 day rest period, you know, preferably 45 or 60 days. So if I manage things correctly and if the weather cooperates, you know, I can graze the cows where the sheep have grazed before the sheep have to go back there. Um, nice. Which, you know, I sort of feel like the cattle are like parasite vacuums. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll eat the larvae that would otherwise infect the sheep. And, and it works relatively well, usually until around August. That's when I have to really start taking a look at doing FAMACHA scores on the sheep because otherwise, um, you know, I end up with a high level of infection. Yeah. But, you know, I don't typically get a lot of parasite infections, I think, because, um, you know, I do manage it that way. But, you know, I still keep an eye on it. Yeah. So when you're out on pasture, how do you catch them for FAMACHA? How often are you able to do FAMACHA scores? So I'll typically start doing them sometime in August, and I just bring them back into the barn. Yep. And pen them up and do it in the barn. Yep. Um, occasionally, I can do it out on pasture, but I'm not as good at catching animals by the back leg <laughs> when they're on the run. <laughs> we are humans, after all. They are actually like four legs is faster than two legs always. <laughs> exactly. yeah. 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 A couple of years ago, I did a project with um, Tatiana Stanton at Cornell. Looking at birds for trefoil as a way to, you know, reduce the parasite load in um, ewes and their lambs. And so we would corner them with Electronet, but like I still had a hard time catching them. And, you know, Tatiana is, I don't know how old she is, but she's definitely older than me. And she would like get them just like that. She's it's me. Like superhero. She is. I've noticed that too. She's an ageless human. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yep. 
Oh, I love that. Uh, so, so where did Peace of Earth Farm, where did your farm name come from? Peaceful by Nature. Peaceful by Nature. Um, Sorry. Peace of Earth Farm. Oh my goodness. Our, our, our other friends in Northern Vermont. That's so funny. I think, I think, I think the two of you should actually meet at some point um, because uh, I think that you, yeah. So Peaceful by Nature Farm, where did that name come from? So it kind of came from two places. Um, my former partner who started the farm with me always used to say that I, my personality is so peaceful by nature. Like I'm oh. just relaxed. I'm calm. I, you know, I don't overreact to things. Um, you know, it's sort of that that's my nature. Right. And then the other thing was when we started the farm, you know, we really wanted to, to operate it in a way that worked with nature instead of against it. So, you know, we're very much about like the bird life, um, on the farm. I keep my barn doors open all summer because I have barn swallows that come in and nest, you know, up in the, you know, the different places in the downstairs of the barn. And, you know, we started off with just a couple of pairs of barn swallows. And now I think I probably have 15 or 20 nests in the barn because they come back to the same place every year. Right. Oh, right. Yeah which is so cool. And so like I have just generations of barn swallows and you know, they eat the insects, you know, out in the pastures. And, um, you know, so like I really wanna promote that as part of the ecosystem is, you know, encouraging the barn swallows. I have um, bobolinks in my pastures and we're not in a bobolink like priority area for grassland nesting birds. So like, the last few years, I have refused to mow anything until after the nesting season because I want those bobolinks to survive. Oh. You know, I've got, um, you know, like we have bald eagles, we have, uh, you know, deer and other small mammals, you know, those kinds of things, which like I'm sure they're everywhere, but it's just really neat to see that like they choose this farm as kind of their sanctuary. Um, you know, I, I have a red fox that's been hanging around this year. So I'm like a little nervous about my lambs being out on pasture. So even though I have woven wire fence around the pastures that I used when the lambs are young, I put electron on the inside because, you know, the fox was going through the woven wire fence to come in and hunt for mice. They sure so, do, don't they? <laughs> which was fine until the lambs were born. Right. And now I'm like, okay, you know, your time to hunt in my pastures is over, you know, try the fields next door that aren't fenced in. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that, that's where the name came from. Oh, that's wonderful. I love it. Well, I have to say that uh, I would definitely uh, say my observation has been you are peaceful by nature. I can't speak to the farm, but, <laughs> but, but every time that I've met you, you're a very peaceful person. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh man. So, so my understanding is you didn't grow up on a farm. So how did you end up, where did you start and how did you end up where you are? So I grew up in the suburbs of Boston, which is like the last place you would expect somebody to start farming from. Um, and I just, I had always been like really into animals and when I, it was time for me to go to college, I decided that I wanted to go for animal science and then I was going to go to vet school, you know, like a lot of animal science majors do, like High you. Five. 
Yep, high five. I think our scores are pretty similar. Um, and I went to Cornell and kind of got my butt kicked freshman year and was like, okay, so what else can I do with animal science that's not vet school? Right. Um, and so I got really interested in dairy management. And long story short, I kind of like um, concentrated in dairy management. And then um, I had a professor at Cornell that told me that I should go, go into research because this is back in the 80s, because farmers would not take advice from a woman. Right. So I couldn't go into extension or sales or anything like that. And I didn't really want to work on a farm. Like I wanted to be, like I wanted to work with farmers, but I didn't want to be a farmer at that point. Yep. Um, and so I decided to go to graduate school. I went to Penn State and my research project was on supplemental feeding of dairy cows in a grazing system. And that's kind of where I got introduced to grazing. Huh. Cool. So from there, I worked for Extension. Um, and the state grazing specialist at the time here in New York for NRCS was uh, Daryl Emick. And Daryl was like very excited to find somebody who understood grazing with dairy cows be and feeding because that was always the big challenge was you know, helping farms to make the adjustment to grazing without losing a ton of milk production and yep. all of that. So, you know, I was working in extension, you know, working with farms, didn't want to be a farmer, um, transitioned over to NRCS so that I could work with more farms that, you know, dairy farms that were grazing. And along the way, um, you know, I got married, had kids, got divorced, met Jack, Jack had sheep. We decided to buy a farm together, move his sheep here. And um, that's kind of how I ended up being a sheep farmer. I never expected to actually like sheep because, you know, you always hear the story like people who have cows hate sheep and vice versa yes. because they think sheep are stupid. Yes. They're not. They're just, they have a strong flock behavior. And as long as you understand that, and like, once they get to know you, they're not as, they're not very flighty. Like my sheep will follow me anywhere, yeah. basically, because they know who I am. Somebody who comes onto the farm that they don't know, yeah, they're going to be like, whoa, who's that? Right, right. <laughs> Let's stick together over here in the corner. Exactly. I think they, I think sheep are very keenly aware that they are prey species. Yeah. And they're like, we're sticking together. We don't know who that person is. Like, it's, yeah, I, I. I have a I have a, a weakness where I often think that when I have um, like your guests or if I have a school group come or something, I'm like, oh, it'll be easy. We'll just move the sheep from here to there. And all, you know, what is what would be so simple for me because they know me becomes this, you know, rodeo of ridiculousness because yeah. there's 15 people and they're, you know, four feet tall and um and the sheep are like, we don't know what that is. And we don't want to go over there. <laughs> and and exactly. I think that that's not a sign that they're dumb. That's a sign that they're really, really smart. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
they're not big problem solvers. I mean, goats are problem solvers, and I just don't feel like sheep are that, but but they're smart in right. their way. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, so we started with um, basically five ewes, and we bought a ram, and none of the farm was fenced in at that time. It had been, it hadn't been used as a farm for probably like twenty years. So there were a couple of hay fields that somebody had been cutting the hay off um, for a number of years, and you know that was still relatively open. But the rest of it was just grown up to goldenrod. Um, there was a lot of multiflora rose. There was a lot of honeysuckle, um, and so it's only 15 acres. And we started by just using electronet fence and fencing the sheep into areas with that. And over time, we gradually, I would say in the first year or two, maybe, we were able to like get rid of the goldenrod in the places where there wasn't as much honeysuckle or multiflora rose. And, you know, just with grazing yep. management, yep. you know, we got rid of that, you know, this, the undesirable stuff. And then I think it, it was in 2013, um, we built the woven wire fence around one half of the, the acreage because there's a stream that cuts through and the other side was just so thick, like you couldn't walk through it. Yeah. Literally, it was, it was just, I, I, I took tons of pictures back then and and like I said, I mean, like, like the deer couldn't even get through it. It was, oh so my nice. gosh, you know, it was like, <laughs> <It's> like solid. <laughs> solid. Yeah. Yeah, so we, yeah. So we, so we built the fence um, around that first half woven wire and pretty much concentrated on reclaiming that. So, you know, we would graze it, you know, take the chainsaw out and cut, you know, the honeysuckle or cut the multiflora rose because it wasn't as thick. Yep. on the side closest to the barn. Yeah. So we did that for a few years. And then um, in the meantime, we started trying to clear a perimeter on the other side gotcha. through all that really thick brush. Yeah. Yep. We did it all by hand. Oh my like gosh. There was, no, there was no machinery involved because the soil type is really wet. And we just thought that using you know, like a brush hog on a tractor or using, you know, a bulldozer or whatever to clear that perimeter yep. was just going to create more of a mess yep. than it was worth. And that it didn't really fit with our philosophy of peaceful by nature. You're right. You know, right. like we're trying to, you know, do the least amount of damage, you know, while returning the land to pasture. So we went through and did the perimeter. Um, my kids will tell you how much they hated stacking <laughs> multiflora rose and honeysuckle. There was some dogwood out there too, and some buckthorn. So I mean, it was it was thick and brambly and and all that. We got most of the perimeter cleared, and then you know we decided to start building fence. So we had a contractor come in to build the fence, and he actually cleared the last section because it was just. We were at the point where we're like, we just can't do this anymore. <laughs> right. This has been like a horrible, you know, painstaking manual labor kind of a thing. So he cleared the rest of it with his equipment. Um, 
put up a high tensile six strands because yeah. I, again, you know, we're concerned about coyotes and you know other animals. So the bottom strands are really close together, and then we have like one strand at the top that's just high because we knew we were going to bring uh, beef cattle into the operation. So we didn't yeah. want the fence to be too low because, yep. you know, every once in a while you get a spooky animal that. Oh yes. <laughs> <likes to jump laughs> yes. Yeah. So you know we kind of like overbuilt the fence in some yeah. ways, but I think it was worth it because um, I did end up with some spooky animals and they never jumped the fence. So. Anyway. So yeah. That's so, good. So then the, the entire thing was fenced in. We put in a stream crossing um, over the stream just to minimize the damage to that. Um, all of our fence and the stream crossing and a water line were cost shared through NRCS. Um, so we didn't have to pay the full cost of it, but we did still pay a lot because we overbuilt it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it was just sort of like it helped to minimize the amount of debt we went into. <laughs> right. By. That's um, huge. By, you know, working with NRCS to get some financial assistance. So, yeah. Yep. Anyway. Yeah, that's huge. And I, I think it's I think it's it's really important when um, when we're establishing a system and it and it. I guess my philosophy is not always is to do more what you did where where there was you know you were already managing animals there and you were already sort of seeing some of their patterns and pathways and you know before before you installed the permanent fence but I what I I really love it when when folks can try to think about what they might do in the future and have it be like it may seem like overbuilding a fence but what are the what's the fence going to be used for like you know it's it's much more difficult, I think, if if you are if you start with a, a low two or three strand perimeter fence, usually three strand perimeter fence, and that may not feel like it works. It actually work, can work fine for cows, but not always for sheep. And you know, adding strands later is a total pain. <laughs> yes, yeah. So it's almost like it's better to overbuild from the beginning because then you at least have so many more options. Um, for later on, right. if, if you want to have some sort of a mixed uh, livestock system. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I say this as a person with zero perimeter fence, but I, I look, you know, and, and periodically I check myself on that. Like, do I actually want perimeter? And at this point I still don't, maybe that's crazy, but, um, but if I were to have perimeter, it would absolutely be something that is, you know, what can I bring in? What do I want to bring in? Like, I want to keep those options open because who knows, there might be a market for one thing, you know, one month and a completely different animal, you know, next year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, for, for quite a while, we did use just Electronet until we had the fence built. Yeah. And then we didn't do any internal subdivisions until like we had grazed it enough years that like it became obvious like where I was always making the paddocks. <laughs> and so by putting in like the subdivision fences, it just made it less work of moving Electronet yep. all the time. Yep. You know, like I could put in a, you know, a subdivision fence. It's just, I think three or 
think it's only three strands of high tensile. And so I can just like hook the electronet to the subdivision fence, you know, run it across to the other subdivision fence. But each year I can put it in a different place because, you know, my flock size might change or the grass growth rates change, um, which that is one of the things that, you know, because I'm a grazing specialist. Right. I watch my grass all the time. Like I am never not looking at grass when I'm out in the pastures, like going, okay, is it growing well enough? Is it starting to slow down? How much rain have we had? I mean, like, like I'm constantly planning ahead where the sheep are going to go, where the cows are going to go, like how long they're going to be there, you know, just because I feel like I'm trying to be as flexible as I can. I don't get set into this, like, you know, they're going to go into this paddock this many days and I'm always going to put the fence right here yeah kind of so yeah. just because every year is different it is I mean it, do you feel like you've you've had to do you given that you have a background in working with dairy farmers and there's a real strength to to doing the same thing every day I mean that's how having having those those great procedures where they, you know, the same thing happens every day allows the cow, you know, keeps their cell counts down. It means that all those procedures and, and practices happen to keep things clean and like doing all of those things. Like, I feel like um, for many folks who are dairy farmers doing the same thing or being really consistent is really what I mean, um, is part of a secret to their success. And at the same time, grazing like requires this to do a really good job grazing requires like creativity and flexibility and being willing to change. And like, have you had to change your thought process through any of that? Not that you were a dairy farmer, but just sort of starting working with, with a dairy farming audience and then becoming a grazing, an active grazing person yourself. What's, what's that been like? Um, so I, I guess because I've had so many years of working with both dairy farm farmers and then, you know, also over time, I started working with more beef farmers and more sheep farmers. And so I guess like the totality of the experience of working with all those different kinds of animals <laughs> Fair. really helped me, helped me like recognize that, yeah, I can be more flexible in my grazing management than maybe a dairy farmer can. Um, you know, like I can start them in a different paddock every spring, which is really better for the grass. Um, but like, I still start close to the barn just because um, like when the lambs are young, like they are now, I actually bring them in at night and feed them hay for a while until they get used to the pattern of like, we go out during the day, we come into the barn at night, we go out during the day. We... And, and then once I feel like they are big enough, then I start letting them out and they just stay out all the time. And then I move them further from the barn too. You know, cause I feel like the bigger they are, the less um, risk of predation. I don't have a livestock guard dog either. So yeah, so I just try to, um, you know, always have flexibility plus um, what am I trying to say? Flexibility plus, you know, 
some kind of a routine too. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I get that. I really get that. And, and it does change like every day. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so like I have part of my lawn that I'm sitting here looking out the window at that really could be grazed and, but it's my lawn, right? And like it would just be electroneted in if I were to graze it. And I have some lambs that are only two weeks old and I'm like, okay, like they had, they, like they haven't gone out yet. So I have three moms, like one set in that group. Um, they're really tiny when they were born. So I didn't want to let them out with the rest. I wanted to let them, you know, stay in the barn for an extra week or so. But then I'm like, okay, like to get from the barn to the lawn, those new, those lambs that haven't gone out yet, they're like not going to understand the whole idea of like, follow the fence to where the, right. <laughs> to where my house is going. You know, like I want them to get a little more experience with how to move in and out before I put them out on the lawn. So yeah. I'm debating like, should I just mow the lawn? Right. <laughs> and wait until the next time around? This is a negotiation I have with, with my son every year because, because he, he enjoys, I don't understand it, but he enjoys mowing our lawn and he, um, and at the same time, like, I won't let him mow until we've grazed it the first time anyway, just because I'm like, this is free grass. Like, and it grows, exactly. it, it grows early. Um, it's one of the first places that perks up on our, on our farm. And, you know, we have some pretty thin soil uphill ledgy places and they take a while to come in. And so I'm like, okay, I don't want you to, I don't want you to mow it. And he's like, I don't know. I'm starting to get uncomfortable pretty soon. It's going to be like, you know, hanging with the mower. And we have this negotiation back and forth. And then uh, I send the ewes through it and they leave manure everywhere. <laughs> and yep. then he mows it. He basically clips the lawn. Like we don't have a tractor at this point, but, but, but he clips with the mower um, just on the lawn and, you know, Sometimes I feel badly because he's he's mowing through sheep poop, and sometimes I'm like, you know, I just yeah. made the job easier because we just ate a bunch of this stuff. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's pretty, yeah, it's well, pretty funny. Yeah. Creative and, use of green spaces. Yes, yes, and so so part of my debate is like, okay, so if I mow it, is it going to grow back in time for when I'm going to actually need to graze it? Right. Right? I mean, right. Like we had a 10 day period where it just rained every day and then it's been really dry since then. So I'm like, hmm, are we on a drying, you know, are we, are we heading towards one of those periods where it's going to be dry for a long time and the, the grass where I've already grazed isn't going to grow back. Right. And so I'm going to need to put them on the lawn, even if it's a little over mature, like they can, they can still graze it. Yeah. Yeah. They can yeah. graze it down as, as low as they might otherwise. But anyway, so that's that's my current internal debate. I totally get that. That's the the blessing and the curse of being in a flexible system is that right. we don't always know what the next step is, <laughs> and that's okay. I mean, that's what I love about grass is it's pretty forgiving, and um, with you know a little bit of water, then that helps too. And um, but I wanted to swing back. So you you were talking about. Um, you were talking about the kids and cleaning, clearing the fence line. And um, so what, 
what has it been like for the kids who didn't grow up on a farm either to then suddenly be farming and drafted into farming and doing those activities like did they embrace that or push it off or what do they think kind of a loaded question oh sorry yes <laughs> it's okay so we we moved here when they were 10 and 12 yeah and uh, you know initially like my son who was 10 at the time he was very excited to help and you know did quite a bit of stuff um and my daughter was 12 and so for the first few years you know like they would help here and there with things as we needed them um I think after we got the first section of fence built was when we bought our first steers to add into the system and the first winter we bought round bales but we didn't have a tractor so we had to roll the, the round bales out of the haymow down the ramp through a gate through the pasture down to where like we had the steers out winter that kind of they were not like big fans of that i don't think any of us were yeah. um like we used to joke that we were more amish than the amish right <laughs> <laughs> at least they have draft animals right <laughs> exactly yeah yeah, they weren't, you know, you don't see too many Amish families pushing round bales in the wintertime through the That's snow. Fair. That's, fair. That's fair. There were a couple of times we actually had to dig a path through the snow to get the round bales out there. Oh my gosh. So that was not, yeah, that was not like what kids want to be doing. Um, and then in the summer time, you know, they're off from school and I would go to work and I'd be like, hey, we didn't, because we didn't have a tractor. Yeah, we had like a bedded pack in the barn yeah. that all had to be pitchforked out by hand. <laughs> so that was their summer job was to clean out the pens in the barn using a pitchfork and a wheelbarrow. So yeah, they by the time they were like mid teens, late teens, they were like, "Yeah, we'll help, like if you really need our help, but we're done." <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah <sighs> so anyway, but you know there's still you know like if I ask them to help me move electronet you know they're or set up electronet like they they'll if they're home because right now they're both well my son's still in college and my daughter just graduated from graduate school so um you know they're not home very much but you know if I'm like hey can you come and help me with such and such like sure um and currently I have a high school student who comes uh, a couple times a week and helps me with stuff too. Nice. And he's very helpful. That's great. So how did you, how did you find a high school student um, to come and to come and help? So uh, through Facebook. Awesome. Yeah. His mom actually posted. So we have like a community page where people, it's called the scanner nerds, but it has nothing to do with the scanner. Like it has, it was originally started for that, but then like people started posting like not scanner related. I'm looking for a job, not scanner related. I'm, you know, <laughs> I need somebody to come and clean my chimney. <laughs> Those kinds yeah. of things. Yep. So, anyway, so his mom posted like, does anybody have a farm that my son could come and work on? He really likes to work outdoors. You know, 
he he's a hard worker, whatever, whatever. So, um, you know, I contacted her and I was like, I'm looking for somebody to come and help me with my sheep and, you know, doing outdoor work and all oh. that. And so he started about a year ago and oh. he, you know, he's really good on the tractor. He's very responsible. Like I was down in New York city for five days. He basically took care of the farm while I was gone. That's awesome. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It's those relationships, yeah. isn't it? That help. Yeah. Yeah. And he's way better at catching sheep than I am. <laughs> <laughs> this is the hind leg grab, I'm guessing, right? <laughs> no, that or he'll just like, he'll like tackle them. <laughs> Sometimes that is the only way to catch a sheep is yeah. just to full on <laughs> grab them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be it would be great if I had a handling system, but there's really my barn is an old dairy barn. Yeah. And you know, we've got the pens in there and it's there's just not enough space to put in a handling system. So yeah. you know, that's that's like my dream. Like I see these people that have them and I'm like, oh, right. oh, if I only had a handling system, I'd be so happy. <laughs> you know, especially for like hoof trimming and doing shots and that kind of stuff. But totally. No, we just put them in a crowded pen and Russell them. Yeah, that's mostly what I do as well. Yeah. And I, I I've I've done the math on it and I, I need a, a much larger flock for that to be a profitable use of um, farm investment. But at some point yeah. my dream is to just have a, a windfall of some sort and um and just buy one because I want it. But I'm not there yet. Yeah, I occasionally buy it easier. Buy a scratch off ticket thinking like <laughs> Oh, what would I do with my oh I feel like that's a good question for various people in the in the farming you know in our in our life like okay when we think about what we, what what one thing would we buy with a scratch-off ticket um and yeah I would definitely yep. go hand, handling system and 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 yeah maybe new sheep shed who knows we'll see uh, <laughs> but, um so I know that that you've been balancing for a long time being a farmer and being like a public service ag service provider, you know, between between um, doing extension work and and then also working for NRCS. Like, how do you how do you balance that? Because there are a lot of people who are doing that back and forth between the full time, you know, the day job and and the weekend night job or. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you manage that um, in a way that that keeps you sane? I'm, I'm going to assume that you are so. mostly sane. Yes. Okay, just checking <laughs> that your systems help help you stay sane anyway. But yeah, yeah how do how do you manage balancing balancing those? So, um, I mentioned before that we had gotten up to about 25 sheep. Yeah, and that was just a disaster for us because. You know, Jack was still here then, and we were both working off the farm, and we had all these lambing problems, and then we had problems after lambing. Oh. And, you know, part of the reason why we didn't catch those problems was because there were so many sheep. I think we had 45 lambs that year, and so many lambs, and not enough time to really manage it the way we should have. Plus it was probably too many sheep for the number of acres we have. Um, so anyway, long story short, 
that was a lesson learned yep. and you know sold a bunch of the sheep and you know got down to, to about i think last year i think i had 10 nine or 10 that lambed yeah um and that was much more manageable um i you know i did have to sell a couple actually i, I sold one and i retired one because she was a bottle lamb and i can't let bottle lambs go they're like pets i totally get that yeah yeah so anyway um but you know like this time of year they're out on on grass and so i try to set up paddocks on the weekends so that I'm not setting up Electronet every night after work, right? Like I, mm -hmm. I have my plan, like where they're going to go next. And so I get, you know, with this kid, Colin, that helps me, we try to get everything set up ahead of time so that during the week, it's just a matter of, you know, on the day, my residency periods are usually three to four days in a paddock mm -hmm. because I can't do it. Like, I just can't handle moving them every single day. Yep. It's just easier for me to do three or four days. Yep. And so during the week, it's just a matter of, you know, like moving them from one paddock on a Wednesday or on a Thursday or whatever it is. Yep. Um, and then like the following weekend, take down Electronet, you know, set up the next paddocks, those kinds of things. Yep. Um, in the and there's always other stuff to do too, right? Like I have to move the cows. I just use poly tape for them most of the time. Yep. Um, yep. And, but you know, there's also yard work, you know, like mowing the lawn. You know. <laughs> when we don't have the sheep do it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Those kinds of things. Um, and so most of that work gets done on, on the weekends, although sometimes I'll do stuff after work. When I get home, you know, if it's a nice day and I just want to be outside. Um, in the winter, one of the things that I've learned is that if I feed the sheep enough at night, I don't have to get up in the morning to feed them totally before true. work, right? Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Like that was such like an aha moment. Like, <laughs> oh, I don't have to get up early before work to go out and feed the sheep. Like I just, right, right. you know, I feed them square bales. I know how much they're gonna eat in a day. And I just, that's what I feed them. And they have an outdoor frost-free waterer for the winter time. So they can get water out there. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I just do, you know, bedding and feeding hay at night for the most that's part. Awesome. Yeah. And the, the cattle are outwintered. Um, I buy baleage for them. And usually every four or five days, you know, they'll need a new bale of baleage. And, you know, so I'll do that. I try to do that on the weekends or before I get, like if I get home, like when it's really dark out, I hate feeding baleage at yeah. night. Yeah, yeah. Um, I try to do it, you know, like on the weekends or um, I just plan a day that I can do it in the morning before I go to work. Mm -hmm. um you know so I know like I can go in late or if I'm teleworking from home I'll do that day. so you know it's all about planning ahead I guess yeah yeah what I'm trying to say yeah no I I love that and I love the fact that you that you 
shifted when they're being fed. I think, I think that there's this like mental picture we have of like getting up and doing chores every morning. And, um, and while that is nice and it feels like, oh, I've accomplished something, you know, first thing out of the day, animals are fed. Now I can go on with the rest of my day. That's like also the best time we have to think for most of us. And, um, and the animals do need to be fed, but they don't have to be fed at the crack of dawn every day. And right. that's, yeah, it's been a huge shift for me. I've gone to, um, uh, in the summertime and partly this is because I, I don't have set paddocks. Um, I try to move them every day if I can. And what I have shifted over to, because I was doing that exact thing where I would get up and I would go move them and it would be my first thing I would do every morning. And it was lovely. It was a wonderful time of day, but, um, on days when the move is a little long or I have to thread around some brush or something like that, then suddenly I would lose, you know, two hours to head of good head time at, at a desk or at a place where I could write things down. I had great thoughts. <laughs> I thought mm -hmm. deeply while moving sheep pens, but I didn't actually, um, I didn't actually, uh, I didn't move my business forward. I didn't move my farm forward. I didn't, I just thought a lot. And what I now do is um, I have a break sometime in the mid afternoon and I move them. I'm like, that's fine. They, they're still getting a fresh paddock every day-ish, but it's like a totally different. Yeah. I think part of it too, is I was worried that they'd get out if I didn't go out, crack a dawn and move them in. It's actually kind of not true. <laughs> so. Um, and it's sort of nice because by then the dew has come off the grass. So the parasites theoretically have sunk down back um, a little bit. So they're not up on the, in the moisture, but I've had to, I've only done that in the last, last couple of years. I've had to undo, you know, years of, of habit yeah. to get to that. Well, yeah. And I also think the older I get, the less of a morning person I am. Like, <laughs> I really like my sleep. I don't want to get up at five o'clock in the morning so that I can <laughs> do chores. No, I'd like to sleep until six. Exactly. <laughs> I take a little extra time to have a hot beverage in the morning and yeah, exactly. just contemplate the day. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so because you've had this, this long career in, um, in, in serving and working with this community and you've joined this community of, of act, active farmers too, what would you suggest to somebody who's, who's looking to get into this? Um, are there places that you would send them? So um, I would tell people to definitely talk to people in cooperative extension from their you know, local extension office through their university. Um, because, you know, a lot of university people, a lot of extension people in different states, you know, do have a background in grazing now. Yeah. Um, that didn't used to be the case back in the late 80s, early 90s when I first got started. Um, and I guess, you know, also like their local soil and water conservation district, local USDA office because there's resources there to help with, you know, looking at the land, telling you what your soils are like, yep. um, you know, what can grow there, what can't grow there. Um, you know, there's all kinds of programs 
that can help, like I said, with the fence and water systems through, um, at least here in New York, the soil and water districts have money that help um, with issues around water quality. So if you need to fence your animals out of a stream or out of a pond, um, you know, they can help like with designing a way to do that and, you know, potentially helping to pay for some of it. Um, same thing with NRCS, but NRCS focuses not just on water quality, but also, um, you know, soil erosion, soil health, um, you know, wildlife habitat, those kinds of things. So, you know, they, you, they'll talk to you about what your goals are um, and they'll talk to you about like what you think the concerns are. They will assess what they think these, the concerns are and you kind of come together on, you know, like what's the best way to approach this problem. Um, and just as an example, I had a field visit with somebody a couple of weeks ago that wants to do uh, pastured pork. And our field office person was like, we can't help people who want to pasture pork. And I was like, yes, we can, because it has nothing to do with animal species. It has to do with the resource concerns, right? Right. Right. Like what are the resources they have and what are the concerns? So, you know, this woman was planning to to pasture her pigs in an old apple orchard, but the apple orchard had been taken over by honeysuckle. Oh goodness. Right. And so, you know, you can address the honeysuckle because it, it is choking out the apple orchard, like mm -hmm. address that first. And then as part of that, you know, you can also, you know, once the honeysuckle is out, then you can also pasture the pigs in that apple orchard as part of removing the honeysuckle because they're gonna root in there, hopefully, and, you know, try to, I mean, they're not gonna root a lot if they're in there for a short period of time, but that can help right. with getting rid of the honeysuckle. And like the person was like, oh, that's a great idea. And, I, and, you know, part of my recommendation was like, don't build any fence to start with, like keep using the electronet until you can get the honeysuckle under control. And then it will become more clear, like where you want to graze the pigs at different times of the year. Totally. You know, but, you know, having every, you know, having all those minds together, looking at the same problem, you get different ideas of how to solve the problem. Right. Totally. Totally. I, I was going to ask, you how your day job contributes to your farm life but I think you kind of just answered that it's like <laughs> but but how would you answer that you know more more completely like how how does your your day what what things do you bring from your day job that um that help you farm better or differently um I, I guess I would just say like, it's all about the grass for me. Yep. You know, understanding how grass grows, why it grows the way it does, um, and also the soil health aspects. Um, you know, this place wasn't farmed for a long time and the soils are very wet. There's a very high clay content. So within that context, I'm always like, okay, how can I graze this? and build soil health at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so that might be feeding a round bale in the winter 
in an area that I feel like, you know, it could use some organic matter. And then sometimes I'll plant cover crop seed over the place where I fed the bale to help break down the organic matter and to help improve the infiltration at the same time. Yep, yep. Because those cover crops have roots that are shallow, some are deeper, some, you know, go way out. You know, it just depends on on what the plant is. Um, and it, those places where I've done that, like it is the grass that comes in after a couple of years is thick and dense and green and, you know, so I don't think in my lifetime I'll be able to feed round bales on enough of this 15 <laughs> acres. I mean, it's only 15 acres. I know, I feel the same but, way. <laughs> but, you know, like those little improvements year to year, I feel like comes from my knowledge that I have from my job, yeah. right? Yeah. Like I wouldn't know so much about organic matter in soils and infiltration rates if it wasn't for the fact that my agency talks a lot about soil health and, you know, those kinds of, of things. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get, I totally get that. Yeah. Getting, getting to, to visit I added it up at one point. I was like, I think in my extension career, I got the chance to through pasture walks or TA visits or whatever. I think I visited over 300 farms. And, and I was <laughs> like, <laughs> you pick some things up, but you just can't help it. <laughs> right. And I think those things have really informed how I, how I manage as a farmer too. And um, yeah, just never stop learning. Yeah. Yeah. So what have I not asked you that, uh, that you, that you would love to talk about in your journey? Um, well, you haven't asked me about what my future plans are. Oh, what are your future plans? Yeah. So, um, I can retire in like three to five years mm -hmm. and at some point, my body's going to be too old to continue doing this, you know, as, you know, as a, as a farm. So my, right now I'm thinking I may just phase out the sheep part because I feel like they require more physicality, right? When, mm -hmm. when you have to handle them, you know, to trim hooves or to give um, CDT shots or to, you know, whatever, like, like you have to have physical strength and having this high school student now really helps me with that. But, you know, he, I don't know what he's going to do after high school. Right. 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 He yeah. said he, I mean, he's not a college bound kind of kid, so he's probably going to stay local and he's probably going to work locally, but like he can't work here full time. Right. right. So we're going to have to we're going to have to negotiate, like, can he come up a few times a week still after his full-time job and help me out with things. But I think I'm going to shift more towards the beef cattle over time because they don't require as much physical handling. Um, I do have uh, a cattle chute that I can run them through for that stuff. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. Um, two, two of them refuse to go through it is the problem right now. <laughs> One of the cows is just simply too big. She doesn't fit. She's, she's massive. 
Um, but I can get them into a small pen and still, you know, do some vet work type things with them in there and get them bread and whatever. But, you know, so I think probably eventually the farm will have more beef animals and no sheep. Until the point where I'm like, okay, this isn't fun anymore. <laughs> I mean, the advice I've always given other people is like, if farming isn't fun for you anymore, you shouldn't do it, right? Like farming should be fun. It's yeah. not something that you are, um, you know, uh, sentenced to for the rest of your life, unless you want it to be for the rest of your life. And so I guess I'm prepared at some point to say, it's not fun anymore, I'm done. Yeah. At which point I'll sell it or, you know, rent out the pastures to somebody else or whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm going to cross that bridge when I get to it, but yeah. that's kind of where I'm at. And, and that whole, I mean, that's part of the reason why Jack left was he was quite a bit older than me and he was having physical issues and it wasn't fun for him anymore. So you know, I wanted to stay. I wanted to keep doing it. Yeah. Well, there's that flexibility of being able to let go too, which is, so do you, do you think that that is a, um, do you think that is a first generation thing as well? That, that, you know, we don't always assume that our kids are going to want to do this. I know yeah, my son doesn't want to do this, so I don't you know, at some point we'll let this go where we yep. are. Yeah, same thing. I mean, my daughter's working in New York City. You know, my, my son is still in college, but his career is not going to be farming related. So, yeah. yeah. That's so this, is, yeah. this is probably a first and a last generation farm <laughs> all at once. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. 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 I don't think we have to, I don't think we have to carry that. And I, I see my, my multi-gen friends and, and, and I, and I feel for them because I feel like there's a weight sometimes that's there um, that isn't, isn't there for us. I mean, we have a harder row in some ways just to get started, but yeah, if we don't have kids who want to do this, but then again, we never know what our kids are going to want 10 years or 20 years. So Right. Who the heck knows? Or grandkids. That's that's an interesting one too. Like, wait a minute. What about the grandkids who come up? We have a nephew in uh, South Carolina who really loves coming here. You know, <laughs> like, and he's he's eleven, but you never know. I mean, I don't know what's yeah. going to happen in twenty years or fifteen or whatever. Yeah, yep. just never know. Let's we'll stay open. Yeah, and. And I do know that when I'm ready to sell the farm, that I have somebody who wants to buy it. Like I've already been approached that, you know, whenever you're ready to, whenever you're ready to be done, let yeah. us know, we'd love to buy the place, which is great to know that. That's lovely. You know, and it'll stay in farming if I do that. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess after all the work we put into clearing brush and I mean, there's still brush that needs to be cleared out it's kind of an ongoing process, but yeah. you know, it's nice to know that somebody will continue to manage it as pasture and not exactly. just, you know, 
be like, oh yeah, isn't it great? We have this barn and 15 acres, but we're not going to have any animals on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's sad. I mean, I think the places, I think the animals need to be integrated into all different kinds of farms and, and when there aren't animals, there's something missing. And maybe that's yep. just, you know, me, the recovering, you know, animal science major who always thinks <laughs> there needs to be animals and things, but animal, but livestock are one of the principles of soil health too. So, yeah. you know, if we really want to build soil and we really want to grow soil and do all the things that soil health will, will can get us, then we can't keep the animals out. That's not a good idea. Right. Yeah. I'm so glad they added that pillar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the first four pillars were not enough <laughs> for the animal science people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I really appreciate your time. Um, and I'm really excited to come see you soon at uh, Grestravaganza. And uh, yeah. Yeah. This was a lot of fun and I'm glad I agreed to do it. Um, you know, because everybody who has a farm, especially first generation farmers, love to talk about what they're doing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's exciting and, you know, it's different. And, you know, it's like you can have all these great dreams and goals and you work towards them. And, you know, one by one, you check them off your list. So, and yeah, Grass Travaganza should be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> Definitely yeah hopefully that. uh you know i don't know how long you're planning to stay around afterwards but maybe you get a chance to do some farm visits that or, would be you know awesome so some especially to like some of the people that have been on the planning committee for grass travaganza because mm -hmm. you know there's a there's i think probably four or five of us that you know not only do we have agency jobs but we also have farms Right, right. Which seems to be a common thing. So, I think it is. I think it. I, I think it just makes us. Um, you know, for somebody who works with farmers, I think it makes us better at helping them because we understand um, not always what it's like to do it full time. Um, but uh, I, I just I dug deep a lot in in my experience as a farmer to mm -hmm. talk with other farmers and there's like there's a, a great credibility that comes with that and um yeah and it almost it almost doesn't matter how many or any of that you know I in fact I used to I used to downplay that experience and I I had a farmer that I went to visit he was someone who was on the Vermont grass farmers board for a while and he said oh so do you have animals at home and I was like yeah I just have a few and I can't remember what I had at the time I might have I might have been in sheep at that point, but I definitely had pigs or chickens or something. And um, and and I was like, yeah, I just have a few this or that. And he's like, do you get up and feed animals every day? And I was like, I do. And he's like, well, then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't downplay it. Like, you're getting up and feeding animals every day. <laughs> like, Yeah, you're you're a farmer. Like, don't let people tell you you're not a farmer. He didn't actually say that, but that's what I took it as. It's like, don't yeah. don't let people tell you you're not a farmer if you get up every day and take care of animals. Yeah, there were, so this is kind of a, a nice, kind of a funny end note, I guess, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, there was a guy in my office for years yeah. who used to refer to people like me as hobby farmers. Yes. And it drove me crazy. And one day I finally said, you know what? These hobby farmers, if they are getting up every day and taking care of animals, it's not a hobby. A hobby is something 
you do when you feel like doing it. Right? Yes. Love that. It's true. So nobody out there that has animals or spends any part of any of every day doing something on their farm is a hobby farmer. They're they're a farmer. Yes. And nobody should nobody should make you feel less because they think that it's just a hobby. And yeah. you should just say, no, this isn't a hobby. I work every day on my farm, just like yeah. every other farmer. Just like every other farmer. Yes, I'd love that. Thank you so much for saying that. That's true. That's really yep. true. Identity is a really huge piece of this, isn't it? Like we struggle with identity. Yep. I've talked to lots of folks about that. Like, when am I going to be a real farmer? When am I, you know, like as if it's some you know, if I have 20 animals, I'm not a real farmer. If I have 25, I am a real farmer. Like there's not a, there's not a line there that suddenly no. one day you're like, oh, I have enough animals or I have enough this or that, or, um, yeah, I, I, I struggle with that too. Um, uh, I, I have struggled with that in the past and I, and I continue to, uh, where there are programs that, um, that will, um, uh, prioritize folks who get their whole income from farming versus folks who are, or a majority of their income from farming um, versus off-farm um, income. And I've always been like, but that's just separating people. Like, you know, if you, if you're a farmer and you're doing a thing, you might have to work an off-farm job for various reasons. You might have to send your kids through college. You might have to, you know, you might have student loan debt. You might have a mortgage to pay because you're a first generation farmer, but that doesn't mean that you're not serious. And right. it might mean that you need that fencing assistance or you need that, um, you know, a grant program or whatever it is. And just because you have an off-farm job does not actually mean um, that you shouldn't apply for those things and sometimes they're written that way and it's a little tough when when you're balancing the off-farm job and yeah yeah I mean yeah. I mean the good thing is I think there's a recognition out there now I think so. that's more that the, that beginning farmers um underserved you know historically underserved farmers um you know veteran farmers like there's all kinds of programs out there now yeah people to take advantage of because there is this recognition that the future of farming is not all mega dairies or all big feedlots or all you know thousands of acres of cropland yeah you know that there are a huge number of small farms startup farms you know i remember um uh hearing gosh, who is the guy name isn't coming to me but he talks about agriculture in the middle yes i'm totally blanking on that too yeah, yeah i am too. yeah john yeah. john something thank him oh uh, uh john eichard is that yes, john eichard? John eichard. yes. Yeah. okay yeah 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 i'll have to post a link to john eichard stuff because he's written some really cool stuff yeah 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 so yeah, we're kind of losing that. We need we need to get the little guys going. Yeah, yeah, more farmers. We need more farmers. Yeah. Well, not only that, but you know, a lot of people really are into buying from their local farmers. You know, yeah. that yeah. they want to know who's raising their food and how it's being raised. I see that at our local farmers market all the time because that's how I market my meat. Yeah, primarily. So. Yeah, 
Yeah. Which is a whole nother podcast. It's <laughs> we can have you back on. Actually, I'd love to do a, a, a panel at some point with some folks from different parts of the country who talk about the different ways that they market um, and, and what has worked for them and how that's evolved. But I feel like that's a good panel podcast for a future time. Yeah. So yep. thank you again, Karen. Thank you. It's awesome yeah. to talk to you. And yeah, I love it. And, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I'll see you in July. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Looking forward to it. Yeah, cool. me too. Great chat with Karen. We just, we have a bunch of things in common and I just think that she is so cool. And one of the things that really strikes me is how she went into research, which one could argue is objectively harder uh, because she received the, the feedback that farmers would not take advice from a woman. Um, and it, it's kind of crazy because as we look at extension now, at least extension in the Northeast, um, and also a heavy percentage of NRCS and conservation districts in the Northeast, the people on the ground helping farmers are largely women. And I just, I'm glad that Karen didn't give up when she heard that. And I'm sure glad that there are an awful lot of farmers who are willing to take advice from women who are working very hard for them. Um, so I'm so glad Karen didn't give up and just glad that she just took a different path. So I also really liked the part of the conversation about being a hobby farmer. I, I hate that term. <laughs> I just really hate that term. Uh, and it's so often it's thrown around by folks who aren't even farmers at all. Um, if you get up and feed animals every day, you're a farmer or a rancher. There's just, there's no hobby about that. There's no hobby about that. You may decide to, to raise those animals for your own food, or you may decide to sell those animals. That's a, that's a different, those are different choices, but that's not really a hobby. As Karen said, when you have to get up every day and you can't choose to not do it. So are you a person who's balancing a natural resource career, uh, whether with NRCS or a conservation district, or maybe a, uh, a a for-profit or a non-profit, we, I would love to hear from you. You are not alone. Um, and I could totally spend a lot of time on this topic about balancing, you know, working in, in ecology or working, um, in, as an agricultural service provider. I would just love to hear what your experiences have been trying to balance the two of those. Um, please feel free to zip me an email with your thoughts at choosing to farm at gmail.com. Um, it's an experience that I've had quite a lot of personal experience with, and I would love to hear from other folks around the country what it's like for you to try to balance those things. So if you'd like to subscribe to our mailing list uh, to get new episodes delivered into your inbox or leave comments or questions, just visit choosingtofarm.com. Uh, we also have an awesome Patreon with uh, some whole unedited episodes dropped in and a bunch of other um, resources as well. Uh, those are in the show notes. The Patreon is um, also Patreon slash choose to farm. Uh, yeah. Let me know if you have any questions. Looking forward to next week and uh, more Grestravaganza. And uh, thank you so much, everybody. I hope you have a great week and I'll see you next time. And here is my husband, Chris Sargent to play us out.